in any church, in any organization of making tough decisions. And today we're going to really look at how do we deal with those tough decisions? How do we deal with each other as we're making those decisions? And you know what I love about the Bible? It doesn't mince words. It doesn't cut corners. It doesn't make it light and fluffy for everyone. Unfortunately, there are some pre preachers who pick and choose the real fluffy things and they leave the difficult things aside. But the truth is that we need to see all of these things because it, it really comprises the human condition. When you're struggling, you want to know that you can turn somewhere and get the answers and they're straight from God and they'll, they'll work out to his glory. So verse 1, 1 Timothy 5, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. The younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the, uh, the younger as sisters with all purity. So again, chapter 3 establishes church leadership. Chapter 4 reminds of the difficult tasks. And chapter 5 is, well, how do we do this? How do we get this all together and go to each other and not have uh, problems doing it? So the, the Apostle Paul is guiding this young pastor of a really troubled Ephesian church. It says, exhort versus rebuke. So in other words, you know, especially an older person, the Bible's clear about old, honoring the older generation. We don't want to be rude, but it can be something, as, and, and exhort isn't light either, but it's in more of a respectful way. It could be something as if there's some, an older person doing something and, and you, uh, they're considerably older than you could say, listen, um, you've been around for a while. You should know better. You should, be, you should be setting the example. Everyone here is looking up to you. So that's a better way than just kind of slamming the door and banging your fists. And uh, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't do it that way. And you shouldn't do it that way anyway. Now, in context, remember, this Ephesian church had its difficulties. And uh, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy that there were some, because he knew this, in the church that were older, from all the sources we could gather Pastor Timothy was probably in his mid to late 30s. So the older folks were looking down on his age and they were, they were uh, really despising it or disrespecting it. And the Apostle Paul is like, listen, don't let them get away with that because you've been ordained for this task. But now how do you deal with it? Well, ideally, the older person in the church, the gray-haired person, has matured. They don't speak that quickly. They know when to hold their tongue. They have wisdom that they can give to the younger generation. They actively pray about discipling or pouring into someone younger so that their years of experiences uh, are not wasted. However, maybe in this church there were some that were older, uh, but they were set in their ways. Their attitude was they can't learn anything. They don't need to go to Bible study. They don't need to pray with anyone. And they certainly don't need someone younger telling them what to do. And if... Timothy didn't respect their age, maybe good counsel would have gone in one ear and out the other. Now, by the same token, what does he say? Treat the younger a certain way as well. Don't disrespect them either. And, and I can appreciate this being the age where I am because I'm not in my 20s and I'm not in my 70s and 80s, but I speak to both those that are older than me and those that are younger than me. And he says, treat the younger as brothers or sisters. Remember, the young person will also tune you out if they think you're condescending to them. If they think you're belittling their youth, they're not going to hear anything you say either. And what does he say at the end? Again, respect goes both ways. It goes up and it goes down. It goes left and it goes right. So we all need to learn how to respect each other. He says, treat the younger as, the youngers as sisters in the church with all purity. Well, what does that mean? Okay, young ladies come into the church. It's not a club. You know, they don't want to get hit on. 
They don't want to be um, stared at. They want to be treated with respect. When a young woman comes into the church, she wants to be treated and she wants to be and worship in a safe place. So he's making sure that he makes that dichotomy as well to young Timothy. Verse 3. Now I'm going to break this down. I'm going to read 3 through 16 and break it down into sections because Paul does touch on a subject, goes to another subject, and then come back. So I'm going to try to make sense of it all. He says, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number and not unless she has been the wife of one man well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has received, relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them or give aid to them, and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows." So the treatment of widows. Now, we're going to see there's going to be some cultural issues here, but definitely in everything in the scripture, we can, 2,000 years later, take this and apply it to our society and our family life, if that is the case. Now, there was uh, a registry or an enrollment of widows back then. They didn't have the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They didn't have a pension system, Social Security. So it was really difficult when a person got older to make a living. Now, if you were a female, it, was a, it wasn't God's society, remember. It was Christians living in a pagan society. It was Greco-Roman society. So they didn't have the same safeguards for the poor and the widows and the, the fatherless as the uh, Christians did. The government didn't provide that way. So Paul is trying to help them to negotiate their lives, their Christianity in a pagan world. Um, the truth was that in Acts chapter 6, there were the Grecian widows and the, the Hebrew widows, and um, the, Grecian were, the Grecians were complaining that their widows seemed to be neglected. So there had to be this parity. There had to be some type of fair, equitable system so that everybody could be ministered to equally, which isn't always an easy thing to do. And again... The man in that society was the breadwinner. So a younger widow, if a, her husband passed, she might be able to survive because she was young and could probably still work. But an older widow would have a, a lot of trouble. Uh, if she couldn't find a, another husband to marry, she would struggle. So the church had to help out. So there's a little bit of our background. And he was trying to solve the dichotomy between, and this is tough, you know, every church has to deal with this in some way. Who really needs the help and who doesn't? 
unlike the government where the government can raise taxes and uh, you know make you pay more money and print money um, the church has limited resources so number one I'm gonna break this down into four category number one lifestyle is she truly a believer is she truly part of the uh, you know Christianity the bar part of the body of Christ or is she somebody who is maybe just looking for a few bucks going from place to place and seeing if she could survive like that there was um, if you remember after 9-11 a lot of churches swelled and the church that I came from my old church there were some that came in claiming to be 9-11 widows but the, the truth was the feds actually called some of us because they were scammers so they were going from church to church giving a sob story and so, some of them weren't vetted some weren't asked questions of they were just given stuff okay and it turned out later that they were scamming the church so are they really in need or are they not ask some questions here do a little investigation if she was really a needy widow well then her actions would speak forth on this you know for good works uh, she would diligently raise her children or grandchildren if or maybe helped out in some way washing the saints feet now don't get the impression that they were trying to make these women demean themselves so they could get money if you lived in that culture if you came into anyone's house they would wash your feet it was a common custom it was like hospitality like if you go to someone's house for dinner they'll put out some food and they'll put out maybe a dessert that's called being hospitable in those days washing the saints feet was being hospitable so it was hospitality uh, going on were they serving the Lord probably in the local church in some way were they relieving the afflicted? You know, if you, uh, if you have a spouse and then you don't have a spouse, you have more time on your hands. Uh, more time on your hands to do things that you normally wouldn't do with a spouse who's not there anymore. Uh, so maybe you would be serving the Lord more. Okay? Now, when I read the cultural, I read all the uh, books and such on culture, it does seem that the church is even, uh, for a time, may have hired some of the widows to do some work they gave them some money, and um, it seemed to work out that way, which really isn't a bad idea at all. Some churches still do that. The second point, does she have familial help? Is there anyone who's willing to help, especially those who are believers? Especially those who are believers. So if, a, a, if, you, if you're a believer and your aged parents or grandparents get up there, do you just ignore them, or would you help in some way? I mean, I think conscience would dictate that if we are believers, we should try to help them in some way. So he was being concerned that there were other family members that really should get on board and sacrifice a little and help out. Now, I have to give, put, take my hat off to the Indian culture, the Eastern Indians. They come here and they buy a home and there's usually a few generations that live in that home. And the older person, the oldest person, may be frail, maybe non-ambulatory, and they, their last days, they're with the family. Now, can we all do that? Is it always feasible? No. I'm not here to try to give anybody a guilt complex. But you do have to uh, appreciate some of these countries, these customs overseas when they come here, and you see what they do, and you say, hey, that's not a bad idea. That's very merciful, okay? Verse 8. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty powerful. So what you're saying is that a person who claims to be a Christian and can just look the other way or, or walk around with blinders and seeing even in your own family somebody that needs to be helped and you don't do it, that's pretty 
uh, strong characterization made by the Apostle Paul. Now, Heather is covering the James study, which is really a blessing. No matter how many times you read that book, you see it's a blessing. And I believe they just covered the portion where uh, James says, you know, faith without works is dead. If you see someone who has no clothes or is starving or is in, in need and you just say, hey, be warm and filled and you walk past, how do you say that you're a believer? How can you see something like that and not have empathy you know, from, for another human being? And Paul's saying it, it's in your own family and you're ignoring that. The last few years in law enforcement, we've been trained on elder abuse. And that's really abhorrent. That's really reprehensible. In a society where we have to train police officers to, uh, to see if a family is, you know, maybe waiting for them to, to pass so they could get their life insurance money and treating them like, a, like subhumanly. That's bad. Neglecting to feed them. So this is what we deal with in our society, and it's not pretty. And I can see, I'm trying to, in my mind, imagine what he's thinking of as he's writing this, right? Uh, or you, young parents today, some young parents are, um, you know, they're so caught up with their social lives, they have children, but they don't take care of them, and the grandparents take care of them. Um, and I, I don't mean having your grandparents watch them or go in there for a few weeks or whatever, uh, but I mean that they just have nothing to do with their children. Again, this is what we're dealing with in society as well. Those are your own children. How could you not want to take care of them? Um, I know that, again, in my experience, I've talked to many who have been addicted to some type of drug, and uh, even moms, they lose the maternal instinct for their children, and that's really, really a hard thing to see. So 2,000 years, has anything really changed? Probably not. Humans are humans. It's just the same circus with different clowns. They just get recycled. Right? Third point, there's an age issue and a fidelity issue. So, um, and we talked about this. Um, the woman probably, if she's, I don't think he was saying, well, she just turned 60 yesterday, so we can't help her out. I, you know, I think what he was saying was, again, in that culture, if a woman could not get remarried, if the, you know, the clock was ticking, the men were the breadwinners. Again, it was Greco-Roman society. God said in his word that you should take care of the poor, you should take care of the widows. So I just want to make sure we understand that. Paul is trying to help them to be able to survive in this culture, right? Um, a younger widow may be able to remarry and, um, you know, do well for herself. But if they're definitely over a certain age, the, the likelihood of them getting help from anywhere is, is very slim, and we need to pull together and help them out. Now, I do get the impression by reading this is that the some of the younger widows um, may have promised or had some type of agreement with the church to help out, and they, he was finding that a lot of them were um, kind of reneging on their uh, commitment, and they were just looking for men. So that's what he's kind of going with there. The fourth point is the church should never subsidize sin. We see this in verse 6. We see this in verse 13. He said that some of the widows were living for pleasure. Now, that implies a sensual pleasure, okay? It wasn't that they just wanted to be comfortable. They were seeking things that, and everyone handles grief differently. Some go in the wrong direction, and some were. Uh, he also mention, mentions gossip. Some were going from house to house, you know, just they had idle time. The Bible says that when we enable sin, we become partakers of sin. And there's a lot of enabling in society. 
and it really should stop. And it would be disgraceful for the church to support somebody financially while they go out drinking and partying and living off of hard-earned tithes from tithers in the church. So that can't happen. In the same vein, if we help someone to the point where we make them idle, that's not good for them either. Um, they went from house to house gossiping, some of them. Now, today we have phones and Facebook, so you don't really even have to leave your house to gossip anymore. You can do it right at your computer terminal. So unfortunately, sin is easier today in, in many respects. What I have found, though, is that gossips of any age, sometimes the biggest gossips have the biggest followings. And I, back in the day, they were supposed to be shunned. But I attribute that to two reasons. Number one, for fear. And I've seen it. I don't have a problem, you know, if someone is that way. You know what? I've just, I have to cut the ties with you. I have enough fortitude inside to be able to do that. Some are in fear. They're afraid that if they cut the tie with the gossip and they make them angry, well, they're going to start chatting about them. Listen, right now, probably somebody's talking about all of you. You know, and you can't stop it. What are you going to do about it, really? Right now, I'm sure someone's talking about me and... You know, they must think I'm that wonderful to always have me on their mind, but don't worry about it. You know, be stronger than that. The second reason that some gossips gain a following is because there are those who are busybodies. They are idle, and they want to be in the know. And they know if they can find the church gossip or the local gossip, they'll get all the information they need. Oh, I'm in the know now. You know, I really like it when I go to work, my secular job, and I hear something, and they're like, oh, you didn't know that? I'm like, no, because I don't seek it out, and I don't care. I don't need to know other people's business. So it's always good when you're one of the last people to hear something because that says something about your character. Um, verse 14 is the cure, to keep busy. And specifically for these widows, he had a plan for them and, and basically how they would uh, get by in their culture. But I would say the same thing. If someone's gossiping and they're idle, they're just bored and they're bored with their lives. And there's plenty of things around this church that I can get you to do if you fall into that category. Come aboard, and uh, I'll get you so busy that you won't have time to talk about anybody else. But moving on. A few applications in today's society. Number one, church leaders have a responsibility to use, you know, remember, we, we can't raise taxes here. We don't send stuff to your house. We can't print money in this church. So if anything comes in, it's strictly voluntary. It's strictly voluntary. So we have a, an a, obligation as leaders to use that money wisely and responsibly because then if someone finds out, they may say, hey, you know, I can't believe that my money's been used for this, and they may have a good point there. So that's number one. Number two is that church tithes should never fund sin or irresponsibility. The government often funds irresponsibility, but we have to be completely different than what the government does. You know, we can't look at it as some, some program, Okay. And number three, in the case of widows, show them respect. Help the ones that really need to be helped, but don't be a pushover either. Don't be foolish. Right? The fourth point is that the social gospel, which is really starting to be preached more and more in churches today, is, and, and I agree with many aspects of it, but not with it completely. The social gospel preaches that our main concern has to be helping the poor become middle class or wealthier. And what's happening is a lot of in the social gospel aren't preaching the real gospel anymore, the gospel of salvation. And I'll tell you, you talk to any, I've seen story after story, missionary account, and they'll say, where I serve in the missionary field, don't just throw money at them. Tell them about Jesus. 
Tell them about the way to salvation. See, what's the difference if you help a bunch of people, maybe millions of people, to become really wealthy and die with a few bucks in their pocket? Well, first of all, when they die, the bucks don't go with them, and if it did, it can't buy anything in hell. So the truth is that Jesus came to die for our sins, and that's the primary uh, concern. And sometimes if we enable or help someone to the point where they don't see the need for God, again, it's detrimental. It's detrimental. So salvation has to be the first uh, cause. Seven, he says, and these things command that they may be blameless. Now, some bristle uh, at correction or discipline. Some are rebels to the core. But why do we do these things? Why is there an, an order? Why is there discipline, correction? Why? So that all can be blameless. Remember, if we help someone to sin, we partake in those sins. For those of us who are in leadership, that's bad. <laughs> it puts us at fault, too. And for the person who's in maybe some type of lifestyle that's, that's detrimental and damaging to them spiritually, we want to help them to get out of that lifestyle. We don't want to help to further that. And it may come with pain. It may come with people saying, oh, you're mean, or, you know, I thought you, you know, and people throw all kinds of stuff out at you. But you know better. You know it's going to help them. And maybe they need to be broken before they, they see their need for God, and then we pull together and help them out. Verse 17, he says, let the elders, different class of people here now, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now this is speaking about church authority. How do I know this? If you go into the Greek, the same word presbyteros is used in verse 1 and verse 17, which can mean an older man. So what's the difference here? Well, he uses presbyteros, it's a contextual issue, with, to, with ruling or authority and teaching. So what he's speaking about is church leadership. Now, respect, yes. Royalty, no. There are some that will take this in leadership and abuse it and want to be pampered and want to be treated like royalty. I still remember somebody that's very close to me that left the church where they were going um, the pastor stirred up the body to take a collection and buy him a Bentley. I'm in the wrong denomination. <laughs> Respect, not royalty. Uh, that's the problem. And devil, the devil loves the extremes. He takes the pure word of God and he keeps pushing it off to a marginalization to where it becomes some type of fringe doctrine. And that's not, that's not good. Um, so the church leaders have major responsibilities. The ministry of teaching is important. The ministry of, of oversight. And what it says is that God supports that. God supports that. Verse 19. Well, let me just say one more thing. Some will say, and, and I've heard this, well, you know, that pastor or that this or, you know, these person's embezzling, the person's involved in this. Even if, and we're going to get to this at the end, even if we don't see it or, it, you know, they don't get it here, so to speak, the Bible is very clear. Matthew 7, Jesus said, some will come to me and claim to do miracles, claim to you know, prophesy and do things in the Lord's power. And he's, he's going to say, I never knew you. What does that mean? That means damnation. So don't worry about the church leaders who are doing things quietly and you don't see. God's going to deal with them. You be concerned. Let us be concerned about our own walk. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. 
don't receive an accusation unless there is witnesses. Now, this is something that, again, is also present in the Old Testament. Um, if there was a serious issue, a serious crime, just to have one person say, I saw this and there's no other evidence, uh, that was sketchy. Right? So the Bible was clear that there needed to be more witnesses. There needed to be more evidence before you uh, sentence somebody, okay, pass judgment in, in any way. So we're supposed to avoid trial by media, trial by gossip. However, when the facts come in, we may have to do something about it. I've removed some in leadership because they were in a persistent uh, sin or a persistent situation and it was not repented of. I've also restored people. It's like Burger King, have it your way. Removal or restoration. There's a path to removal and there's a path to restoration. And really, if you read 2 Corinthians, the whole goal when we do something wrong is eventually to be restored, to be brought back, and for those things not to be, uh, not like the scarlet letter, not to be staining us anymore. That's, that's God's purpose, restoration, because we're, we're messed up, we're sinners, we, we make mistakes, we fall, we do things willfully, but he really wants us to come back to the fold. He really wants us to be restored and, and for Jesus' power on the cross to really be effective in that, don't hold it. The Apostle Paul even said, when a person's restored, don't remind them of that anymore. It's, it's, it's covered under the blood. Let it go. It's past. These are, the person's new. They're clean. We're not stained anymore because Jesus took that stain for us. Amen. Amen. But he says, rebuke those, and the ESV does a little bit better with this, rebuke those who are sinning or in persistent sin in front of all. Now, it's really not done today. It's really not done today. Now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying we don't do it today. Uh, but I guarantee if, if those, including leadership, that were brought up and that sin was, was said in front of all these faces uh, and that person just kind of hung, hung their head, boy, everybody would fear. I would fear. You know what I'm saying? Um, nobody wants that. That would be kind of scary, I think, for any of us to even consider that. But I guarantee there would be a lot less sin in the church. <laughs> so maybe that's why he said it. You see, in our society, again, don't let society's mores get involved in your Christianity. You've got to keep that separate. It's got to mix like oil and water. In our society, we're worried about hurting people's feelings, damaging the ever-so-fragile self-esteem, um, and it makes our society self-centered and irresponsible. And that stuff also creeps into the church. So God knew what he was doing when he penned this. I know, that many years ago, because it's still applicable today. In verse 19, again, witnesses. Sometimes a person will come to me and say, this person did this or whatever, and I say, listen, if you're not, I'll listen to you, but it's really not going to go anywhere unless you allow me either to use your name or to let that person, when they hear the accusation, have you present. You know, we, we need to stand up. We need to step up to the plate. You know, it, you, we can't make accusations in the dark. It's just not right. Uh, so if we're people of fortitude and faith and courage, this is the things that we need to do. Right? This is a serious issue. Someone's reputation is at stake. Warren Wiersbe says the phrase, where there's smoke, there's fire. He says, yeah, someone's tongue has been set on the fire of hell. And if you read chapter, uh, James chapter 3, uh, you, you know what that means. Uh, Ironside recounts a church bulletin. He went to a church, and in the bulletin, the pastor actually, this is a true story. In the church bulletin, the pastor had this paragraph. 
and he said, some of you have been talking about a situation with, with a wife, my wife, and that I humiliated her in front of other people, and I got physical with her, and she had to be treated at the hospital. So he went through the stages of how he didn't abuse his wife, he didn't mistreat her, and she didn't go to the hospital. And he goes, and lastly, for those of you know, who know me well, I don't have a wife. <laughs> Apparently he got out into the community and he just wanted to make sure everybody understood that they were on the same, same sheet of music there. Verse 21, he says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, pretty heavy charge, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. <clears throat> Why is the Apostle Paul so serious? Why does he use God's name, the elect angels, for everyone to be witness, I'm commanding you not to do this? Well, unfortunately, there's a strong tendency in human nature to show prejudice, to show partiality. Well, we even have laws legislating not to do that in the workplace and, and um, for the government not to do that. That's how important it is. But this stuff leads to cliques, divisions, and unfair treatment in the church. Well, it happens in the world. It certainly shouldn't happen in the house of God. You know, when we, we can show prejudice for ourselves, when we want everyone else to abide by the rules, and we ask for the rules to be broken for us, that's showing prejudice, or for our children, right? No partiality. Again, this is in the James study as well. You see, the, beauty, the, beauty, the beautiful thing about what Jesus did on the cross is he showed no partiality. You know, what he did on the cross, he didn't need any help from us. He didn't uh, set forth classes of people and say, I really like you guys, and I really don't like you. He died for the sins of all. We keep reading this in the scripture. So for everyone here listening right now, I want to encourage you with that. Whatever you think you are, whatever society has kind of left you behind, maybe you're the black sheep in your family. I've heard that from a lot of people. God levels the playing field. See, that's the beauty of what God does. And why do some people hate the gospel? God is saying, listen, you don't need money. You don't have to build popularity. You don't have to go into the neighborhood and politic. I already love you. It's a done deal. Before you were even born, I had formed your inward parts. I knew your personality. I knew what you would like. I knew your predispositions. Why do people hate the gospel so much? It, it gets them mad is because they can't earn it. That's what bothers them. They can't politic. They can't get a leg up on another Christian and be over them. That's why they hate it so much. The gospel's fair. Life isn't fair, but the gospel's fair. And that's what I love about my God, his plan of salvation. 22. He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. There were um, traveling evangelists that would come by, and they would visit churches, and they would maybe ask for some money, and they would ask to speak. And, um, you know, the, if the pastor brings somebody up to the pulpit, he's giving their, his approval to them. So he was saying, you know, again, just like with the widow issue, these guys coming in here, do a little homework. Get a little background. Try to do a little research before you quickly bring them up to the body and say this person's acceptable. You might find out later that they're a false teacher. Same thing what we do up here in the service. Um, you know, you, you have to make sure they're tried and they're tested. Uh, you know, inside the church, it could be detrimental to, to bring someone up too quickly. It could turn them into a prima donna. And I'm sure if you've been in the Christian culture long enough, 
you've seen a few prima donnas in ministry. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what, I still put my hands in the garbage, I take out garbage, I get down on my hands and knees, I cut the runs on the carpet. There are some guys that want to go to the pastor's conference, and they'll walk right past me, and I'll say, listen, we've had this discussion. If I'm going to be, as the senior pastor, getting my hands dirty, well, so are you, or you're not going to be in the training program. It's that simple. Maybe other churches will foster prima donnas, but I won't do it. You can actually hurt someone by bringing them up too quickly. You know, I come from the school of Pastor Luis, and for those of you who know him, it's serious business, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, so what do we have here? Um, don't share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says that evil company corrupts good habits. Again, it's very painful. Uh, friendships change, but there are sometimes you may have to shun someone uh, because they're into something that can bring you down as well. Right? So it's not good. 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, this is um, subject to a lot of uh, controversy. The Apostle Paul is not condoning social drinking. Uh, the Bible is very clear about drunkenness. Uh, it's not to be tolerated. Uh, I've read a lot about the culture at the time, and apparently the wine was mixed uh, two, two parts wine with three parts water. So it was very low alcohol content. Some will say, you know, but he had no alcohol, that's not true, because he said not to get drunk. So if nothing had alcohol, then how could you get drunk? So sometimes what we do in Christianity is we, we find our little peeve doctrines, and we hold on to them really tight. You know, that's, that's not what's going on here. Uh, the word for stomach is stomachos, which is a transliteration. For infirmities is asthenia, which we get in, in English medical terminology. So this was an issue with... We, do we know exactly what his problem was, Timothy? He had some stomach issues. He had frequent infirmities. Um, no doubt that there was uh, cholera and other type of microbes in, in the area that uh, mixing the water with alcohol would, would kind of kill it. Um, could it be the... We, we know that wine, red wine, and even grape juice has polyphenols, which are good for the body. So this was purely... Long story short, this is purely medicinal. Uh, this is a medicinal advice for young Timothy. Could it be that the stress of ministry was getting to him? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, that certainly could have been a factor as well. Verse 24, last two verses. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So some sins are obvious, some are hidden, some leadership, or even other Christians, you know, you may be friends with somebody who's a, a problem waiting to happen. You know, they may have a motive, they may have um, some type of agenda that may only be revealed later, and then you're going to have to question whether you're going to continue the relationship or not. So there are some that, and I love this, because I was like this, you know, if I had, my mentor would come to me and, and call me on the carpet, I would just give it up. You know, I just, yeah, all right, <laughs> you got me, what's the punishment? <laughs> So that's a beauty when uh, other believers can just confess their sins, get it up, get it out, get past it, and move towards restoration. And then there are some that are sneaky. They have a catch-me-if-you-can uh, attitude towards you. It, they, act, they act almost like it's a game. You know, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to elude, and I'm going to be evasive. And, you know, that's just, why would you want to be in a church if you did stuff like that? But, but that happens. Uh, some... On the positive side, some good many good works are obvious, but there are some that others wouldn't see. 
you know. Um, I know Sam is one of the men who was up here. He ministers to the elderly in his community. Most people don't see it. I hope I didn't just take his blessing away. Uh, Miles does a lot with the Gideons. I mean, so you see that um, you may not see it, but, and that's why I wanted to bring them up here. These guys are tried and true. They're tested. You can pray with them. You can share with them. Um, because, you know, I've seen it, and I'm sure there's a lot of things that we haven't even seen that, that God sees. Uh, but, and Jesus even said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So uh, when we do good works, we should probably keep it kind of low-key anyway. So going back to the, you know, there's some tough stuff in here. You know, there's sometimes we read the scripture, and it's very uh, light. It's very encouraging. And I'll tell you what, all the scripture is encouraging. All the scripture is encouraging. Uh, even when we've done something wrong and, and we just feel the need to, you know, we hear a message and I, I need to tell somebody I can trust. I'm, I'm involved in this. I just want it to be exposed and I want to move past it. That is a catharsis. That's freeing. There are so many who walk this earth with so much emotional baggage. They carry that baggage with them. Sometimes they carry the baggage to the cross and they leave a few packs down, but they leave the cross with a little bit more. They just can't get rid of that baggage. It's just so, now I think the challenging part is who can I trust? Well, certainly you can trust God. You don't confess your sins to me or any of those leaders. You confess your sins to God. Some of those deepest, darkest sins, you might not want to tell anybody, and that's fine. But you can always try. First of all, he already knows. So he, he's just, I was just waiting for you to come and talk to me. You know, but you can trust him with any of those deep, dark, archaic chained to the basement kind of things that you may be carrying. But understand this. Hear my words. When you confess the sin, he cleanses us, First John says, from all unrighteousness. Please, when you're done praying today and you're done sharing with him, please, when you're done and you walk away from that, feel clean. Because he took that on the... What, what's the sense in Jesus dying on the cross if we're going to hold a few of them? Why? Why do we want to carry that stuff? So there's some of you that will never talk to me about it or a church leader, but I'm going to tell it to you through the sermon. You know, release that. Go home today, get along with your God, and let it go. And be done with it. No strings attached. So as we close, we show respect to each other. We show grace. It goes in both directions. However, there are times that we have to deal with tough issues. We have to make decisions. We have to make judgments. We have to make a call on something. We have to look at the path of restoration. In our society, society, American society is more and more focused on the individual. And if you, you look, at, look at the whole thing with Christmas. California has said that um, most of California's public life has been completely sanitized by anything having to do with Christmas. A few atheists are offended. So if Jesus is a myth, why does that bother you? Christians are stupid then. Why is that really, why do you have to spend money on an attorney and fight to get that? Because it's a spiritual thing, that's why. That's the truth. But American society is focused on the individual. See, the church, if it does that, it dies. The church has to focus collectively. We have to get along with each other. We're going to spend eternity with each other. And for some of you, that's a frightful prospect. <laughs> but it's going to be minus the sin. So God's word is great where it, it's, it's sometimes hard to teach. It's, you'd want to say the right thing. Sometimes it's hard to receive. However, it's the truth. So I want to encourage you today that 
that we learn how to deal with each other. We learn and we understand reciprocity. And we also walk a mile in another person's shoes and treat someone how we would want to be treated. Let's pray.